Spell before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today. We thank you so much for the blessings of this day and for your Sabbath and for the people here. We thank you for the uh, tremendous blessings you have poured upon this ministry. And we pray that we would serve you always, that we would always strive to please you, to walk in your ways, to be an example to others, to do everything you command within your word. And again, set forth an example that follows our Savior, Yahshua the Messiah. And it is in Yahshua's name that we ask this prayer. Hallelujah. Amen. Y'all may be seated. It is a uh, blessing to see everybody here. I'd like to uh, extend my uh, Sabbath greetings to those online. We know there's many watching. But today I want to talk about this concept of law before Sinai, the law before Mount Sinai. Many believe and have this notion that the law did not exist before Mount Sinai, before Moses. What if I told you, though, that there are many examples of the law being found before Sinai? It's actually amazing when you look at the examples and the references and just how many laws we find before Moses. So today we're going to review some of these examples, not all, but some of these examples. Before that, let me ask, why is this important? Why is it important that we recognize and understand that the law existed before Sinai? Why is this important? Or it shows that many of Yahweh's laws were known from the beginning, proving that they are just as relevant for us today as they were then. I want to begin today with a command that I spoke about in my last message, and that is a Sabbath, a very important command we know in Scripture. And as we know, this command was established long before Sinai, long before Moses received the commandments for the Israelites. Now, first evidence of the Sabbath is actually in Genesis 2. I'd like to begin there today. Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. So Yahweh had completed the creation. It says, All the hosts of them, and on the seventh day Elohim ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, and Elohim blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which Elohim had created and made. As we see in the Bible, Yahweh, our Father in heaven, he created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then he did something special on the seventh day. On the seventh day, he rested. It says here that he blessed and he sanctified this day. Now, the word blessed comes from the Hebrew barak. It means to kneel or bless. The word sanctified comes from the Hebrew kadash, uh, meaning to set apart or to make something consecrated. We find here that our Father in heaven blessed and set apart or consecrated the seventh day as a day of rest. Or today we call this day the Sabbath or Shabbat. It's a very special day within our Father's word. Now Shabbat or Sabbath comes this day we abstain from work. Now it's important to realize that Yahweh established the seventh day Sabbath over 2,000 years before Moses, before Sinai ever existed. According to biblical chronology from Genesis 1 through Moses was around 2,400 years So 2,400 years before the law was given in Mount Sinai, we find here Yahweh establishing the Sabbath day. Contrary to popular belief, many of Yahweh's laws, again, were known before Sinai. Again, some 
more than 2,000 years, as we see in this example. This shows that many of Yahweh's commandments were established from the beginning. And were not only for the Israelites of old, because, again, the Israelites did not exist. But they were for those of that time and afterwards. Isaiah 66, 23, a really important passage, a key passage. It shows here that it says, All flesh will worship Yahweh from one Sabbath to another and from one new moon to another. This is a millennial passage. This is a prophetic passage. And again, it shows and it validates that the Sabbath will be observed by all flesh in the coming kingdom. This will happen when our Savior returns to establish his Father's kingdom here on earth. So in the case of the Sabbath, we find that it was established in the beginning at creation. was given, as we know, to Moses and the Israelites. We'll see an example of that was also kept by the Messiah and the Apostles in the New Testament. In fact, if you remember, I mentioned this in my last message, how many times did we find the word Sabbath in the New Testament? Sixty times. Sixty times. We find the word Sabbath sixty times within the New Testament. And of course, we see in Isaiah 66, 23, that all flesh will observe the Sabbath in the kingdom to come. So Sabbath is very important, but we see here for the sake of the message that the Sabbath existed and was established before Sinai. Now, I want to look at one more example with Sabbath before Sinai. This is Exodus 16, 25 through 30. It says, And Moses said, Eat that today. And this is referring to the manna, by the way. For today is a Sabbath unto Yahweh. Today you shall not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day for to gather, and they found none. And Yahweh said unto Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for that Yahweh hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide you every man in his place, let no one man go out from his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day day. Now we're in Exodus. Do we find Moses receiving the commandments in Sinai? Where do we find that? Exodus 20. So we find that example. I'm I'm glad I'm getting some participation today. Exodus 20. Why is this important? Well, it shows that the Sabbath here was given to the Israelites, was known by the Israelites prior to Sinai. Now, of course, we can go all the way back to Genesis 2 and find an example of the Sabbath. What we see here in Exodus 16, again, four chapters before the giving of the law of Sinai, we find the Sabbath mentioned. Very important to understand. So the law was known here. We see that it was known before Moses. Number one, after 400 years of slavery, we know that there was a need to repeat, and that's why I believe the uh, laws were given on Sinai. They were given because many of the commandments were neglected. Number two, I believe the reason the laws were given at Sinai was to write them down. Write them down. Again, they were known prior to this, they, but they were codified at this point, making it more transmissible to, to share with others and not to forget but again in this case we see 2,000 years before Moses the mention of the Sabbath now in Exodus 12 
verse 11, we find another example of a law that was known prior to Sinai. Exodus 12, 11 through 12, this is, And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And he shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the mighty ones of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am Yahweh. Here we find a description of the Passover. Keep in mind that the law, again, was given when? The law was given in Exodus 20. And here we're in Exodus 12. So we find that the Passover was known, it was commanded, prior to the law being given at Sinai. For those who maybe knew, what is a Passover? What is a Passover? In the Old Testament, the Passover symbolized the passing over the death angel and also the release of Israel from slavery. In the New Testament, this day remembers the death of our Savior, Yahshua the Messiah, the day that he died and the day that we received his atonement, his sacrifice. The Passover is one of the most solemn days we find within Yahweh's calendar. And again, as we see here, it all began before Sinai. This was known, this was practiced, and this was commanded prior to Sinai. It's important that we realize, again, that the laws of our Father in Heaven, many of them anyway, that they were given before Sinai, they were given before Moses. This shows, again, that the laws were not only given to Moses and the Israelites only, but were known and observed long before then. I believe it also shows that they're relevant for us today. Before moving on, I want to point out one more thing we find here. It says here that Yahweh would execute judgment against all the mighty ones of Egypt here. That he would execute judgment. What is he referring to? That he would execute judgment upon the mighty ones of Egypt. This was done through the ten plagues of Egypt. You see, each of the ten plagues was an attack on a different Egyptian deity. You know, in the fourth edition of the RSP, if you have one, on page 116, we have a chart showing how each of the plagues would correspond to a different Egyptian deity. For example, the fifth plague, this uh, was a plague of the cattle being killed in Egypt, was likely an attack on the uh, Egyptian god Apis, which was depicted as a bull. You see the Egyptians, for the most part, there was a real short time in his history when it was kind of monotheistic, but for the most part, it was polytheistic. And they, again, had a a deity called Apis, which, again, was depicted by the bull. In fact, I believe that this is where the Israelites got this idea of building a golden calf. Again, it was an Egyptian deity already. They understood it. They knew it. So they, they took this image and they constructed this calf to represent Yahweh, if you remember. And, of course, Yahweh found that as an abomination. Now, we see another day of worship here in Exodus 12. I want to share that. 12, 15 through 16. It says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation. A holy convocation comes from the Hebrew Kodesh Mikrod. It simply means a coming together, a time that we're commanded to gather, very similar to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a Kodesh Mikra, it's a holy convocation. Same thing here. It says, in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. So we find first, in the seventh days are holy convocations 
to you, no manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. Now, as we know, the Passover is when? It's on the 14th day of Abib. That's what Scripture says. And the feast begins on the 15th day of Abib, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We also know that this feast is seven days in duration. We see that it has two high days, two Sabbaths, one on the first day, one on the last day. No work should be done on those days. Now, in Hebrew leavening, because we know that also this day, this feast prohibits leavening. Leavening comes from two words in the Hebrew, seor and kames. Seor refers to the sourdough starter, and kames would refer to a leavened bread or a leavening food product. So during this time, we're to remove those. We're not to, we're not to um, eat leavening of any kind during this feast. Like the Passover, we find that this feast was commanded before Moses received the commandments of Sinai. So many people, again, they believe that the feast days were connected somehow to Moses, somehow to the Israel, somehow to the giving of the law of Sinai. No, we find here that this was done prior to Sinai. And I believe that there's even evidence to suggest that some of these days were kept before Moses. In fact, we find this feast first mentioned in Exodus 5, verse 1. There we see Moses going to Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh. We all know the story. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go so that they can keep a feast. And the feast is referring to as a feast of unleavened bread. The fact that we find evidence of this feast prior to Sinai shows again that many of the commandments were known before this point. Now let's go back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis now. Genesis 4, 8 through 10. It says, And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I know not. And my, my brother's keeper. And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. We find here the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Now why did Cain murder his brother? What was the reason for this? Well, as we know from the story, Yahweh looked more favorably on Abel's offering. When they, they came to Yahweh, and Yahweh looked more favorably on Abel's offering, and this brewed jealousy within his brother Cain. Now, this jealousy eventually led to Cain killing his brother. Why is this important? What do we see in this example? It shows that the command not to murder was understood even at this point. You see, Cain knew what he did was wrong. He understood that his actions was against Yahweh's word. He knew what he did was wrong. But he tried to conceal it. He tried to hide what he had done. When talking about murder, we again know that this was 2,000 years before Moses. 2,000 years before Moses. And here we find, again, that the sin of murder was understood. Cain knew, again, what he did was wrong, but he tried to conceal or hide it. But as we see here, he was unable. He was unable to hide his crime, his, his crime of 
taking the life of his brother. Yahweh said here that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. This notion, by the way, of the blood crying out from the ground, this is what we would call a Hebrewism. Doesn't many uh, literally mean that Abel's blood was crying out? What it means is that Yahweh is saying here that he knew what Cain had done, that the blood was a witness of Cain's sin, of Cain's murder, murdering his brother. There are two lessons here worth noting. Number one, nothing good comes from jealousy. If you really think about it, that's the root cause of what we find here. Cain, again, was jealous of Abel. And because of that jealousy, Cain killed his brother Abel. Here's what it says in James chapter 3. It says, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. So that's what scripture says about strife about jealousy. When we have jealousy within our heart, Scripture defines this as of the devil. It says of devilish. It's, it's a sin. It's sensual. It's earthly. It's not of his word. It's not of his truth. It is in opposition to our Father's word when we allow jealousy to, 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 to gain root. And we're not to do so. As believers, we should do our very best not to allow strife or jealousy within our hearts. Those who do so risk being found unworthy, I believe, of Yahweh's kingdom. If we allow jealousy to take root, we risk the promise that we all want so desperately. Number two, we find here that it's impossible to deceive our Father in heaven. We might be able to deceive family or friends. I'm sure we've all deceived someone at some point. But listen, we will never deceive the one we worship. We will never deceive our Father in heaven. He knows every action we make and every word we speak. There's no deceiving the one we worship. Paul in Galatians says this. He says, be not deceived. He says, Elohim is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There is no deceiving our Father in heaven. I think that's an important lesson. That's an important point for us to remember. Sometimes we do things and we think we can hide those things. And yes, we can hide those things from those around us. But listen, Yahweh is everywhere. Yahweh knows. He's omniscient. He knows. There's no deceiving. Paul says, don't be mocked. Don't be foolish. Yahweh knows. And there's nothing we can do to hide that. We will be judged and we will be reviewed for every action we make and every word we speak. I want to go to Genesis 9 now. This is also with murder. Genesis 9. The hand of every beast will I require it. And the hand of man at the hand of every man's brother will I require the, man, the life of man. Listen, it says, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of Elohim made he man. We find here a law against murder. Now here it says specifically, and speaks specifically about murder. 
This was around 2,000 years before Moses. It's a long time, 2,000 years. And again, we find this in the Ten Commandments, but we find it here long before the Ten Commandments. It was understood. This shows beyond a shadow of doubt that Yahweh's commandments were not first given at Sinai, but were known long before them. This shows that the commandments were not only for the Jews or the Israelites. This shows that the commandments were known for those before the Israelites. This also shows, again, that the commandments are known and relevant and important for us in this day and age. People also point out here that Adam and Eve's sin of eating at the forbidden fruit was what allowed them to gain this knowledge. People ask, how did they understand? How did they know? Where I believe Yahweh simply gave them, and maybe it was the fruit, but Yahweh gave them this knowledge somehow, and verbally it was, it was passed on. Again, until it was codified or written down at Mount Sinai. But before that, it was given, whether it was through this tree of knowledge and of good and evil, or, or whether Yahweh gave them the knowledge, and then it was transmitted orally. Again, until it was codified. You know, whatever the case we find here that the law was again known before Sinai. It was known, but was not codified. It was not written down. This is the only difference between what we find here and what we see in Exodus 20. In one instance, Yahweh gave his word, however he did so, and it was transmitted, I believe orally. But at a certain point in time with Moses, the great law receiver, that it was codified or written down at that point. But in both cases, Yahweh condemns those who would commit murder. Murder was understood. So here we see that Yahweh's law requires a death penalty for those who would commit murder. Some people believe that the death penalty, as a side note, is incompatible with Scripture. Or I believe that this shows otherwise. I don't believe that the death penalty is incompatible with Scripture. Some people say if you're pro-life, you're pro-life all the way. Or no, when you commit certain sins scripturally, the consequence is death. Remember that Malachi says that Yahweh doesn't change. The same Father in heaven we worship today is the same Father in heaven we find in the Old Testament. And his word, his judgments have not changed. Notice here why Yahweh is so opposed to murder. Why is that? It says here, for, it says, for in the image of Elohim made he man. You see, there's a reason why he finds murder so offensive. And it's not just taking the life of another person. It's the fact that we were created in Yahweh's image. Not only are we taking the life, but we are offending our Father in heaven because we are taking the life of someone that was created in Yahweh's image. You see, that's not true of animals, but it's true of human beings. And I believe that's why it's so offensive to the one we worship, because it's it's not an animal, it's a human being. And it's a human being that was created in Yahweh's image. It's an important point. Now we see another command before Sinai in Genesis 9, verse 4. It says, The flesh with the life thereof, which is... In the blood thereof shall you not eat. We see here an important truth about blood. It says 
that the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And it does not matter if it's animals or humans. The life is in the blood. Now, the same is obviously true for for all of creation. I want to share with you just a real short video. It's about a minute in length. Uh, Just blood and what it is and and, uh, what what it consists of from a uh, scientific standpoint. Blood, 10 pints of life force, coursing through thousands of miles of arteries, veins, and capillaries. Those blood vessels carry blood to every other organ, keeping them functioning and thriving. Our red blood cells carry oxygen and nutrients. Our platelets stop bleeding and help to heal our wounds. Our white cells protect us against infection. And the yellow liquid plasma in which they are suspended carries an array of proteins that regulate bleeding and clotting. It's amazing, isn't it? It really is. Yahweh's creation is such an amazing thing. And, And here... We uh, see the video talking about blood. I don't know if you noticed. I watched it a few times this morning. In the video, it describes our blood is life force. Life force. I really thought that was fascinating considering that the Bible says that the life is in the blood. And here from a medical or a scientific standpoint is saying and describing blood is our life force. And the Bible says that the life is in the blood. You see, without the blood, there is no life. As we saw from the video, there's many, many functions blood produces and assists with. Transports oxygen and other nutrients throughout the body. It protects against disease. It has clotting mechanisms. It also removes carbon dioxide and and other, um, other waste from the body. The blood does all of this. Without the blood, there is no life. It is, again, as we heard from the video here, the life force. This is why Yahweh says that the life is in the blood, because it is, it is true. The life is in the blood. For those who would question the existence of Yahweh, how is it possible? Now think about this for a moment. How is it possible that a bunch of nomads would have written a book some 2,000 years ago or more saying that the life is in the blood. How would, we, how would they understand this? How would they understand? You know, for me, this proves the existence of a creator. And it proves the inspiration of Scripture. When we can read something in Scripture and then find something in science that validates what we find in Scripture, I find amazing. And that's one of the things I, I enjoy looking at, the the scientific elements within Scripture. Some people say, I've had people come and tell me, you shouldn't be doing that. Or you shouldn't be interjecting science within the Bible, that they are two separate things. No, the Bible is a scientific book. It has so many scientific principles within it, and here we understand the scientific principle of, of blood. Blood. And blood being the life force. And again, the Bible calls it the life is in the blood. It's an amazing truth. 
Now, according to um, the Benson, this is kind of small, by the way. I apologize for that. But I'm going to read it to you. The Benson commentary has this to say about blood. It says, there are two reasons for this command. Here's what it says. It says, the uh, principal meaning of the passage is to prohibit the eating of blood in any way, the eating of which seems to have been forbidden, especially for two reasons. First, to be a token to mankind in all ages, that they would have had no right to take the blood of any animal for food if Elohim had not given them the right, and who, therefore, to remind them of it and oppress it on their minds in all generations, denied them the use of blood and required it to be spilled upon the ground. And remember, the sacrifices, they would have to remove and spill the blood. They could not consume the blood. Second, and really I think this explanation holds a lot, a lot of weight. Second, in honor of the blood of atonement, Leviticus 17, 11 through 12, the life of the sacrifice was accepted for the life of the sinner. The blood made atonement for the soul and therefore must not be looked upon as a common thing, but must be poured out before Yahweh, 2 Samuel 23, 16. And it ought to be observed that this prohibition of eating blood given to Noah and all his posterity and repeated to the Israelites as a most solemn manner under the Mosaic dispensation has never been revoked, but on the contrary has been confirmed under the New Testament, Acts 15, and thereby made a perpetual obligation. Now the second reason here from this uh, source, Benson Commentary, is the most important because it states and it shows that the blood was used for atonement. For atonement. You see, Yahweh has a very special use for blood, and it atoned for the sins of mankind. And we know that without blood, there, there is no atonement, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement. There is no forgiveness of sin. This is why. This is why we're not to consume blood. Because blood is special. Blood represents atonement. It represents a propitiation of our sins. And for this reason, Yahweh commands that we refrain from eating the blood. Now, as we see from the Benson commentary, not only do we find this prohibition during the time of Noah, right? We also find this prohibition in the Torah, in the New Testament, the codified law, if you will. And then we also find this prohibition in the New Testament. In Acts 15, verse 20, those Gentiles who were coming in were told to abstain from these things. It said these, these four things. It said don't do these things. One was don't eat blood. Acts 15, verse 20. So again, we find this command of abstaining from the blood in the time of Noah. We find it in the law. And then we also find it even in the New Testament. Now, for them, I believe that consuming blood, this is the Gentiles, was connected to pagan worship. But again, the point here I want to drive home is that we find the eating of blood, the prohibition, before Sinai. It's just another example showing that the law existed before Sinai. And again, not only do we find it within the law of Moses, but also even in the New Testament. I want to move on now to another crucial command. This is really amazing when you think about it. Genesis 7, 1 through 2, it says, And Yahweh said unto Noah, Come thou, and all thy house into the ark, for you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Now listen to what it says. It says, 
of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, by sevens, clean. The male and the female of beasts that are not clean, so they're unclean, by how many? Two. The male and the female. Many believe that Noah brought a pair of each kind of animal in the ark. Well, that's partially true. In some cases, that's true, but not all cases. We find here that Noah was commanded to bring every bring a two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal. So we find here, long before Moses, the knowledge of clean and unclean was, was known. It was understood. They knew about clean and unclean animals. What we find in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 which again specifies clean and unclean animals, was simply a codification, was simply wrote down of what was already known. This was already known. We see the example here. Now, some will say, some will say that these animals, these clean animals, this is connected to the sacrificial system. Or maybe it is, but does it matter? They still understood clean and unclean. They still understood that there was a difference between an unclean animal and a clean animal. And this was years, years before Moses would ever exist. Now, in Genesis 14, verse 18, we find another command before Sinai. It's a command of tithing. There it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was priest of the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High El, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be, most, uh, be the Most High El, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands. And he gave him what? He gave him, as says, tithes of all. Now, as you know from the story, Moses here is returning from battle. He was uh, victorious, and he had plunder. So he's tithing on this war plunder, to this person called Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, who was this Melchizedek? We're beyond believing that he was a man or being similar to Yahshua. I don't believe we can know who he was. That's just my opinion. According to Hebrews 7, he was, it says he was like unto, quote, like unto the son of Elohim. Now, we know that's Yahshua the Messiah. He was like unto. Thayer's defines the word like as to cause a model to pass off into an image or shape like it to express itself in it. Strong's defines this word as to assimilate closely. So in the Greek, what this is saying is that this being Melchizedek assimilated closely to the son of Elohim. And for that reason, I don't believe he was the son of Elohim, but I believe he was like the son of Elohim. But anyway... What do, we, uh, what do we see here? We see here that Abraham, or Abram at this point, that he tithed to Melchizedek, which again was a king of Salem, meaning peace, Salem, peace, shalom, Salem. And we also know that he was priest of the Most High. So actually two functions, which is the same thing we find with Yahshua. So again, he resembles for sure there's a connection there somehow. According to most scholars, Salem is also the, the name for Jerusalem. So he was king of Jerusalem. 
and he was also high priest. The word tithe here is from the Hebrew maha sayer, refers to a tenth or a tithe is how it's defined within Hebrew. It's the same word used, by the way, for tithe in reference to the Levitical priesthood. So there's no difference. The word tithe is the same for Abraham and the same for what the Levites received under Moses. The only difference is, is 300 years. You see, this was around 300 years before Moses, this account of Abraham. So Abraham was receiving tithes or was giving tithes to this Melchizedek 300 years, 300 years before the Levites would even exist. Many people opposed tithing will say that this was only for the Levitical priesthood. Or they will say things like it was only for the temple. Or at this point there was no Levitical priesthood. And there was no temple. But yet we find in the word that Abraham tithed, he gave a tenth of all that he received to Melchizedek. Or this shows for me that tithing is still very much relevant, still very much commanded in this day and age. We see another example of tithing in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, 20 through 22 says, And Jacob vowed a vow and saying, If Elohim will be with me, and I will keep and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall Yahweh be my Elohim. Then shall Yahweh be my Elohim. You see, Jacob wasn't quite there yet, not until this point. And he's finally realizing, okay, I gotta commit my life to Yahweh. And he said, I'm gonna do these things. And Yahweh is going to be my Elohim, my mighty one, the one I worship. It says, And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be Elohim's house. And of all that thou hast give me, will I, I will surely, listen, give thee tenth unto thee. A tithe is what that is. the same word, tithe. So here we see Jacob vowing to give Yahweh a tithe of all that he would receive. This is a second witness for the command of tithing before Moses. Because again, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And here we find that Jacob promised to tithe. Now, I don't know who he tithed to. It's kind of a mystery. We don't know who he tithed to, but he says he would tithe. So how that worked, I'm not sure. But obviously, there was something established for him to tithe. I want to give you some background here. This was, again, a turning point within Jacob's life. In this same passage, we find that Jacob had a dream. And within that dream, he saw angels ascending and descending from heaven. And when Jacob had this dream, he realized that he had to fully commit. He realized that he had to fully commit. This dream lit a fire under Jacob motivated him to fully commit himself to Almighty Yahweh as a sign tithe to his Father in heaven. Tithing is not only a command. For me, tithing is more than that. Tithing is an indication of our commitment to our Father in heaven. And the reason a lot of people don't tithe is they just can't give that up. 
You know, I believe that when we don't tithe, we are robbing our Father in heaven. That's what Scripture says. I know it's kind of harsh, but that's what Scripture says. In Malachi 3, Yahweh's reprimanding Israel, and they said, um, what have we done? And Yahweh told them, you, you have robbed me. You have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now, he also says there, he says, prove me now. Prove me. And he says, I will pour you out a blessing from heaven that you will not be able to receive. So I believe tithing is not only a command, but also an indication of, of our hearts to our Father in heaven. But again, for the message, I want to simply point out here that this command was given before when? It was given before Sinai. It was given before Moses. Now, if these examples are not enough, we find another example. Genesis 26, 4 through 5. This is really great, by the way. I would encourage everyone, if you don't know this, you don't have this one memorized, book, chapter, verse, do so. Genesis 26, verse 5 is key, but we're going to read verse 4. It says, And I will make thy seed to multiply the stars of heaven, and I will give unto thy seed of all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Why? Why was Yahweh going to pour down this blessing, make this, you know, pour the, the blessings upon this man? Why? It says, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You see, that's why Yahweh here is, is pouring out this, this great blessing. It says here that Abraham obeyed, obeyed Yahweh's voice, obeyed his commandments, obeyed his charge, obeyed his statutes, and obeyed his laws. And again, this was hundreds of years before the Mosaic law. And yet we find that Abraham obeyed Yahweh's word. So we see undeniable evidence here that the commandments were known and being observed long before Moses would ever be born. I want to take a few moments and delve into how the Hebrew defines some of these words. The word commandment here comes from the Hebrew mitzvah. Strong's defines this word as a command, whether human or divine. Now we know here that the commands, the commandments were divine. They were not from man. They were divine. They were from Yahweh. Now, the word statutes comes from the Hebrew kokah. I don't pronounce that quite right. I don't have that rolling R thing going, but it is what it is. And it refers to an appoint, appointed custom, manner, ordinance, site, statute. Now, the primitive root, though, of this word is interesting. It says, refer, one of the meanings is an appointment of time. An appointment of time. Is it possible that this may refer to days of worship? An appointment of time. Well, lastly here, the word laws comes from the Hebrew Torah. Torah, a word we should all be familiar with. So we find evidence here that Abraham obeyed the Torah some 300 years before the Torah was given. Now, really, a better way of saying that would be, yeah, Abraham obeyed the Torah 300 years before the Torah was codified. Because in the Torah existed. Yahweh's laws existed. We see so much. Of, and by the way, there's, there's so many examples, more examples I could provide. We have one more yet. But so many more examples of Yahweh's laws being observed and being seen and being witnessed in the Old Testament. I want to consider one more example. Genesis 35, verse 1. All right. Or something happened. 
to Genesis 35. That's fine. We'll do it the old-fashioned way. So I'm going to turn to Genesis 35 and... And Elohim said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make thee an altar unto El, that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. And Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, Listen, it says, Put away the strange mighty ones that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make thee an altar unto El, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange mighty ones which were in the hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oaks which was by Shechem. So we find here in this passage that Jacob told those of his household to put away, put away their strange mighty ones. This is a reference to the false gods or deities that some of the people were still holding on to. You see, Jacob at this point was fully committed. But not everybody with him was fully committed. But Jacob at this point, he's saying, look, not only am I going to be fully committed, but we are going to be fully committed within our household. So we're going to put away these strange mighty ones. We're going to put away these false deities. And that's what we within the word. It's really going back to the first of the Ten Commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 3 says, Thou shalt have no mighty ones before me. That's the first commandment. And Yahweh is saying there in the first commandment that I only will you worship. You're not going to worship anyone else. You're not going to worship any other deities. You're not going to worship any other mighty ones. No, just me. So we find here this command which we find in Exodus 20, was again known and observed long before the command was ever given. Such an important example because it shows this command of idolatry. It shows that this command that we are to worship Yahweh alone was known long before, long before Moses or the giving of the commandments, the Torah on Mount Sinai. Again, the Torah always existed. The Torah simply was not codified. It was not written down. But the Torah always existed. The Torah was from the beginning. Yahweh's commandments were from the beginning. His laws were from the beginning. They existed before Sinai. And there's so many other more examples. And again, as we've seen today in the Word, some of these examples are over 2,000 years removed from Sinai. 2,000 years They understood things like murder. They understood things like the Sabbath. They understood things like like blood. What an amazing thing. Life is in the blood, the life force. They understood it. Clean and unclean. They understood it. They understood these commandments long before they were given. Long before they were written down. They understood these commandments. And for the record, again, there's many, many more commandments I could review today. But again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. Now, again, just as a reminder, why is this important? It's important because it shows that Yahweh's commandments existed from the beginning. It's important because it shows that Yahweh was the author of the commandments and not Moses. Moses was simply a law receiver. He was a law giver, too. He he gave the law to the Israelites, but it was not his law. He received the law, and he delivered the law that he received from Yahweh. 
Now, lastly, it shows that the commandments were not only for Israel, but for those before Israel, right? And also after Israel, us. You know, as we see in the Bible, there is evidence for Yahweh's commandments of creation. There is evidence for the commandments during the Israelites. There is evidence for the commandments during the New Testament. And even in the kingdom do we find evidence of Yahweh's commandments being observed. The new moon, the Sabbath, the feast days. All of these commandments being observed in the coming kingdom. This shows that these commandments are again just as relevant today for us as they were for the Israelites of old. So as believers in the Messiah, let us honor the one we worship by recognizing the value of Yahweh's word, but even more important, let us let us honor, let us honor the one we worship by obeying him. And may Yahweh bless you.